This is AgriPulse Open Mic. I'm your host, Jeff Daly. Our guest this week is former Kansas Congressman and USDA Secretary Dan Glickman. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by Syngenta. Syngenta is delivering technology and fighting climate change. Learn more at Syngenta.com. AgriPulse Open Mic continues with Dan Glickman next. Today's Open Mic is brought to you by Syngenta. Syngenta aims to deliver at least two technological breakthroughs each year to reduce agriculture's contribution to climate change. That goal is matched by a drive to reduce the carbon intensity of the company's entire operations by at least 50% by 2030. See what innovative thinking and collaboration can accomplish. Learn more at Syngenta.com. This is AgriPulse Open Mic. Kansan Dan Glickman served the 4th District for 18 years on Capitol Hill and served as Secretary of Agriculture from 1995 to 2001. Glickman also served as Chairman of the Motion Picture Association for six years and has recently authored a book titled Laughing at Myself, My Education in Congress, on the Farm, and at the Movies. Glickman says Washington has changed a lot since he left public office. Politics today is a lot rougher than it used to be. The, the partisanship is much more bitter. The division between the parties is much more bitter. And so I thought I would write about my observation about how we can make it better. And, I, and it's not a detailed technical book. It's more just more experiential but uh, in terms of how I dealt with some of those problems. There's no magic answer to this, but what I found is, is that if people like you and they trust you, and a lot of that can be built with humor, and, and, and I'm not talking about cruel or inappropriate humor, and I don't think every, any, everybody has to be a comedian either, but, uh, but what I call is the ability to laugh at yourself, the ability to you know, recognize that at times you do make mistakes, um, it, it, it has the ability to make you more influential, more persuasive, getting things done. And, and I've seen it with a lot of people, and I talk a lot in my book about Bob Dole, how I thought that Dole was a successful politician for two reasons. One is he listened well, and the other one was is that he uh, was never afraid to engage in, in self-deprecating humor, and it allowed him to uh, be a human being. And that is in a sense, what's missing from the politics today. Can you give an example of what we could learn from Dan Glickman and laughing at myself? Well, I suppose the, um, you know, there, there are a lot of, you know, anecdotes in my book. I'm a very bad singer, but I sometimes used singing as a way to, to get, uh, you know, I would make up songs and parodies to songs, and I would use that as a way to, you, to, to get out of trouble. Years and years ago when I was in the house and a lot of times there were issues that involved, one involved the, the house bank where a lot of us had overdrafts at the house bank. And so I wrote a song about myself and sang it to the gridiron clubs in Kansas about how I never really learned how to add, add or subtract. And that was my problem. And, and, it, and, and it turned the, the atmosphere overnight. And Pat Roberts and I used to do this, uh, uh, yearly annual Kansas State Board of Agriculture show about agriculture, and it was it turned into nothing but not like a laughing or a Saturday Night Live, a clean Saturday Night Live, where we could make fun of ourselves. And in the process, uh, it looked to the public and the folks that were listening to us that we actually got along with each other. 
and we got stuff done. And, and I, there are a lot of examples of that, you know, in my book. You mentioned this earlier, but let's let's bring a direct question. How is Washington different today than when you served on the Hill and in the Cabinet? Look, I don't want to be too nostalgic. We had our battles 50 years ago. But what, what I found both in my experience in Congress is, is that uh, the level of toxic partisanship was far less than it is now. We're almost in a tribal atmosphere. If a Democrat says blue, a Republican says red. And um, we can't can't reach agreement on 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 just about anything and and it's uh, it, it, it it's a lot of reasons for this it has to do with money in politics and the 24-hour media and you know there, there are a lot of things and so today it's just a lot tougher getting things done and what that's done i think is it's created a public distrust in government which uh, you know, the public always used to make fun of Congress. That's and that's been the case since Mark Twain and Will Rogers. But but th- there was a general respect back then that I don't see now. January sixth was a dark day for the nation and the events that were at the Capitol. What's this a symptom of? And, and what's now the responsibility of leaders on both sides of the aisle and and both uh, both sides of the Capitol to teach and to learn from the mistakes? You know, I'm I'm pretty much a moderate. I'm in the middle. I'm I'm you know I'm I'm a Democrat, but I've never been a, a, a ideological or a biblical Democrat. And I'm some of my best friends in government were on the other side of the aisle. But this January sixth uh, in situation was, was really just terrible. Imagine that the Capitol being stormed, broken into, people killed, cops hurt. You know, and, and my, my own judgment, I think the president had, President Trump had a fair amount to do with in, in inspiring this. I'm not saying he caused it all, but it, I don't think it would have happened without his words. But on the other hand, there was a certain percentage of the population that was susceptible to this, to, who, who were just convinced that the election was rigged and that and that Joe Biden had stolen this election and. They were going to, they were, you know, if they had had guns, they would have shot up the place. And, and so what, what I saw out of that was, you know, we haven't seen, we'd seen bickering and fights, and there'd been some, in fact, some, some assaults that had occurred in the Capitol over the last 50 or 60 or 70 years, but, but nothing like this at all. And what, what struck me about it is, is that you couldn't even put together a group of five Republicans and five Democrats, bipartisan group, to kind of, go back and look as to why this happened and what we can do to keep this kind of thing from happening in the future. And that's evidence to me that we have some real structural flaws in our democracy right now. Are there truly issues with the voting system? And if so, what needs to be done? You know, I mean, my, my own judgment is looking at all the state election commissioners is, is that virtually all of them said the election was on the level that any any cases of fraud were just de minimis but for whatever reason there are people out there that don't believe that that the believe that the election was just stolen not on the level or or, or anything and i you know i i have my own thoughts about you know why why this case this may be the case and and i'm sure there are things that we can do to make the election system even more foolproof in, ter- in terms of fraud but but you know the elections are pretty much run by the states and, um, you know, my belief is, is that we ought to be encouraging as many people as possible to vote. 
Um, and by the way, you know we had the highest turnout in history in the 2020 election. So it, it, it seemed it seemed to have worked. And um, um, I, but 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 the fact that so many people and it's not a majority, but it's a strong minority who think this election was not on the level that it was stolen. Um, that's something we've really never seen before. And, you know, we've had very close elections before. The Bush-Gore election yes. was was very close, and Gore just pretty much said, okay, I give up, Mr. Bush, you won. And that was a very close election. Nixon-Kennedy, um, you know, the same thing, you know, kind of happened. And so this is it's just it's a whole different set of circumstances. And it, the, the, the worrisome part about it is, is that, well, I think our democracy is strong and, and resilient, I don't think there's anything biblical that the United States of America is going to last forever and ever and ever unless we keep up the principles of democracy. So negotiations are going on now between the White House and GOP leaders on an infrastructure package. Uh, there is a challenge on what should be in the package and how much that it costs. Should this exercise be this difficult? Well, first of all, it's good that they're talking to each other. And um, infrastructure is something that's historically, like agriculture, been reasonably bipartisan. Now, this has gotten more partisan because uh, I think the president wants to include things in infrastructure that not traditionally have been in there, things outside roads, sewers, bridges, ports, water systems. And so there's a debate on that. And there's also a debate on how much money we spend I mean, we're spending money like drunken sailors in the federal government right now. But on the other hand, infrastructure is needed. We need to, to do these things in order to have a strong economy. My own belief is this will ultimately get worked out because infrastructure is historically something that it does bring parties together. And the other thing is, is we are going to go back to earmarks, uh, you know, where a congressman can earmark uh, projects for his or her congressional district. And that those earmarks historically have kind of greased the skids to get people working together. There have been some very strong congressional leaders from Kansas. Nancy Kassenbaum, Bob Dole, Pat Roberts, just to name a few. What did you learn from them in just a moment to reflect on your relationship with them and maybe what we learned from them and even need today? Well, I had good relationships with all of them, even though Bob Dole and I were often at different ends of the political spectrum. And I think at times he thought I might have an interest in his running for his seat, which I would never have done, probably, because I thought he was probably unbeatable at the time. But I had good relationships with all of them because we could work on Kansas issues together in a bipartisan way across the board. So Dole and Roberts and I worked on all sorts of agriculture issues, nonpartisan. I think both Dole and Roberts had, were, had people with great senses of humor as well, and they were likable, um, and uh, I mean, Dole is legion in his his humor, and Roberts was often voted the funniest member of Congress. And Nancy Kassebaum was a person of great personal integrity, and I worked with her on a lot of Wichita issues, aviation, and related things. So the delegation tended to get along pretty well, and it was a bipartisan delegation. You know, I think that was healthy to, to have that. So, so I think Kansas was a model. We didn't always agree, but it was at least on the important issues affecting the state, we did agree. Secretary, there's a list of people that have served in Congress over the years. 
And there's a really smaller list that have served as ag secretaries, and I suppose there's a list somewhere of those people who have represented the motion picture industry. But I only know of one person who has been a congressman and ag secretary and also served Hollywood on the Hill. Can, can you explain how the, this, this opportunity came about and what uh, led you to, to stand up for the motion picture industry? Well, I must be some strange breed of person to have been able to occupy all these roles. But, uh, uh, you know, part of this is just half of life is showing up, and I was in the right place at at the right time. And, and I, you know, when I got to the motion picture industry, there were a few people in Hollywood who kind of scratched their head and figured, what does this guy know? And I would half joke, well, I used to grow popcorn, and now I sell popcorn and that would get a few chuckles uh not a lot but a few chuckles but but you know part of this has to do with relationships so and when i was in congress i was not a particularly partisan guy I got along with most people pretty well and then when i got to usda the department of agriculture is probably the most bipartisan of all of the agencies of government because historically agriculture and food issues have been very bipartisan and brought rural and urban interests together and those kinds of things. And so when I left USDA, uh, I had this friend, Jack Valenti, who ran the Motion Picture Association, and he knew me from Congress. He wanted somebody to replace him who had the stature of a cabinet-level person. And he said to me, he said, you know, in some strange way, agriculture and film and entertainment are very similar. They both rely on exports. They both rely on open markets. They both rely on trade. They both rely on intellectual property rights. I mean, one you eat and one you watch, but there's not all that much difference with them. And I found that there were a lot of parallels, actually. You dealt with a lot of diversity issues while at USDA, some that you absolutely could not uh, ignore. The issue of how black farmers are being treated is before this Congress and even this USDA today. How do you define the issue, and is there any counsel that you can offer as this situation continues? This was the, probably the toughest issue I faced because when I was in Congress and on the Agriculture Committee for 18 years, I do not recall one hearing that we had on the issue of discrimination uh, against uh, bl- black farmers uh, at all. And there were, I don't think during the time I was on the Agriculture Committee, there may have been, even been... There was, I think, one African-American farmer on the committee, but it was, generally speaking, um, the Agriculture Committee was uh, Midwestern and uh, Southern white members, and uh, so the subject wasn't really discussed. The first day I got to the Department of Agriculture, I walk in, and there was a, about two or 300 African-American farmers picketing the department, and I looked at my staff assistant and I said, what the heck is going on? And I then learned about uh, this long-standing case of discrimination, which became the case called Pigford versus Glickman. It had to do with oh, fifty or sixty years of discrimination against uh, on farm loans and farm programs um, uh, by, in many cases, by the Department of Agriculture and the way that the Farm Service Agency ran its programs. And it was complicated and. Uh, um, and it was, I had to work with Congress and the federal courts, and it's still going on. We, we, we started to get the matters resolved, and, and Secretary Vilsack is now continuing to work on it, as did Secretary Veneman and, and others. Uh, and it's also part of the, the whole racial issue in this country as well, which we're certainly struggling with right now. But we did make progress, and I feel good about that. 
Back in the 90s in Rome, you learned firsthand that people were more than willing to bear their emotions, if you will, over genetically engineered crops. What does agriculture learn from those early challenges today, and perhaps should we gone about it different, bringing this new technology to bear? You know, I'm very strongly supportive of science and technology in agriculture and and genetic engineering, CRISPR technology, new technologies can really help farmers, particularly dealing with issues like using less water, uh, using less pesticides and herbicides, and and being more drought resistant. These are crops, and and uh, but I think that uh, and to some extent the industry uh, may have oversold the benefits of GMOs early on, and um, didn't bring the public along. Uh, uh, very well, and so you've had continued controversy regarding that. But, but it's better now. And uh, you know, the one thing we've seen with this COVID epidemic, one silver lining is that it's the modern technology of genetic engineering, these RNA technologies that have allowed us to produce these vaccines that have basically, you know, saved us. In some respects, it's the same technologies, and similar at least that agriculture uses to make crops safer and uh, more climate-resistant and more sustainable. Um, but we just have to learn to explain the issues better than we've done in the past. How would you address this ag labor and immigration set of laws that we have in the country? Because clearly it's broken and agriculture suffering because of it. The irony is is that this should not be an impossible problem to solve in terms of the way we deal with immigration as it relates to agriculture workers and do it legally. Every, everybody says they're for it. They're for a system that permits, whether it's temporary or, or more permanent uh, importation of, of immigrant labor for agriculture purposes. And obviously one of the issues is you know, how well they are treated in terms of working conditions and that kind of thing. But this should not be a problem to, to, that we can't solve because without it, we will not be able to produce enough fresh fruits and vegetables. Dairy is often affected by not having enough farm labor. And so, so you are right. It, is a, it needs to be a very high priority of the Congress. Let's talk about global trade. WTO was the way. Uh, for a period of time, now it looks like bilateral and multilateral negotiations both are going on. What's the direction for the U.S. because we are as, if not more, dependent on trade than we've ever been? Yeah, I think the the big issue here is China. To be honest with you, China has become—they're um, not an enemy of the United States, but they're certainly our biggest competitor, and they often don't play the rules of the game the way that we would like them to play. That we play it. On the other hand. They are huge buyers of our agricultural products. And on the other hand, they steal our intellectual property. And, and boy, it, it is a complicated relationship. I'm interested to see how the administration handles trade with China, which I think will determine how the rest of the world trading system goes. So I just say, watch China, and as China-U.S. Uh, trade goes so goes our rest of our trading relationships. 
you watched agriculture policy come about. You were a part of the process uh, in developing that on the Agriculture Committee and then also uh, executed those laws at the time at the Department of Agriculture. We saw farm bills that were led by conservation. We saw farm bills uh, that were uh, coming about to allow farmers the freedom to make choices, uh, moving away from, from structured programs to risk protection programs. So now that climate is on the table, how much climate should find its way into the farm bill and how much of a role does Washington play in crafting policy? Climate will have a lot to play in the next farm bill because agriculture is a is a contributor to carbon and methane emissions. It's not the prime contributor, but it's it's it but it can be part of the solution as well. And the big thing is that there be a collaborative spirit between farmers and conservationists and the government to, to try to work these problems out without uh, unrealistic mandates coming down. From Washington, what I'm seeing is a lot of great work being done on the ground by farmers themselves, particularly younger farmers who are, are working to improve their practices in terms of no-till agriculture, uh, precision agriculture, and a lot of new scientific techniques that are coming down the pike that will help. I, and I think that for the most part, we can solve the problem of climate as it relates to agriculture through through science. Our guest on this edition of Open Mic has been Dan Glickman, Congressman, Ag Secretary, and now author, Laughing at Myself, My Education in Congress on the Farm and at the Movies. Secretary, thank you for being with us on this edition of Open Mic. Uh, we uh, appreciate your time and being with us. And with Open Mic, I don't ask a question. You have the platform, sir. Well, if people want to read an interesting story of a, of a son of immigrants, uh, from Eastern Europe who came to this country uh, with no resources, no money, and no understanding of the English language and produce a grandson who worked in agriculture and became a congressman and a, and a uh, U.S. cabinet secretary and, a, and then went into the movie business and, and, then in, uh, and then also involved in a lot of nonprofit things involving hunger, both domestic and global hunger. I think it's a pretty interesting read. You know, I, I, I think that the purpose of the book is to demonstrate how you can be serious to get things done, but not take yourself too seriously. That would be the underlying function of the book. And if we want to purchase the book, where do we find it? Well, it's the University of Kansas Press. It's actually not coming out to the end of the week, or Amazon, or it will be available in a couple weeks in most bookstores. Our thanks to former Agriculture Secretary Dan Glickman, our guest this week on Open Mic. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by Syngenta, delivering breakthroughs in technology while cutting the company's carbon intensity by 50% by 2030. Learn more at Syngenta.com. For AgriPulse, I'm Jeff Dowling.